our scripture reading today will come, our first from the Old Testament will come from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And that's on page 745 in your blue Bibles. And I just encourage you to look at the title, Son of Man, as we read this. That's a title, not a description. So look at how it describes this Son of Man. So in Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Our second passage in the New Testament comes from Matthew 17, 1 through 8, and that's just about 100 pages over in 822 in the Blue Bible. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. This is right at the beginning of a particular scene called the Transfiguration. So starting in verse 1, it says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And, he, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your sufficiency in Christ. I pray that today we would experience your son's loving kindness, his comfort, and his help. Lord, I ask that you illuminate the scriptures for us today, and we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going through these five solas, and today is the second sola, as Wes introduced us to the five uh, last week. And the second sola is Solus Christus, just means Christ alone. And so the title today is just Solus Christus, Seeing Christ in All Things. Seeing Christ in All Things. In 1521, about 500 years ago, a person by the name of Martin Luther, the great reformer, I'm assuming y'all Presbyterians know who that is, <laughs> was summoned by Charles, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, to the Diet of Worms in order to be tried for heresy. Luther actually wrote a friend. He said, if the emperor is inviting me to my death, then I will come. The Lord's will be done. Historian Ronald Bateman in his book, Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther, describes Luther's famous or infamous trial, depending on what side you fall on. Bateman writes, the scene lends itself to a dramatic portrayal. Here was Charles, heir of a long line of Catholic sovereigns, the Holy Roman Emperor, incarnation of a glorious, if vanishing, heritage, and here before him a simple monk, a minor's son, with nothing to sustain him 
save his, save his own faith in the word of God. At this trial, among a lot of other things, Luther proclaimed that Christ alone was necessary for salvation, and in fact, nothing else was needed. So this belief that Christ alone saves was so powerful for him that once he was awakened to it, once he was captivated by it, it really took his whole being. It took him entirely. In fact, he becomes willing to take on the two most powerful institutions of that day, which was the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. So what gave Martin Luther, a minor's son, this type of courage? Well, it was understanding that Christ alone saves, and Christ alone saves to the utmost. So like Luther, I hope today that as we learn about Solus Christus, and we'll describe it more, Christ alone, I hope you are able to rest in his saving work, receive his daily help, and remember he renews all things. And you'll see those three points on the back of your worship guide, and we'll go through those. So our main passage today, and we'll see other passages, but our main passage as we read is Matthew 17. And this text will work like a template, if you will, or a map, as we explore this doctrinal statement of Solus Christus. And like any doctrinal declaration, it attempts to categorize one's experience of Christ. So I hope that this passage will be a helpful starting point for us as we try to understand Solus Christus and seeing Christ in all things. So this Reformation proclamation, really it's just a statement, will help us rest, receive, and remember by exploring Christ as our Savior, our mediator, and our illuminator. I'm sorry, Mike, I didn't alliterate those last three. So as we look at the first point, though, you'll see that Christ is our Savior, and we can rest in his saving work. So let's look again with me at Matthew. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Matthew again, 17, and we'll just read one through three. We'll just read one through three. It says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up to a mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And what we'll first see is that Christ alone is our Savior from death, evil, and sin. Christ alone is our Savior from death, evil, and sin. So Matthew's text starts us at the beginning of the week, which is interesting in and of itself, and he takes these inner three uh, disciples to this desolate mountain to pray. Luke is this parallel passage, and he tells us that they're going there to pray. And suddenly it would seem that Jesus' face is transfigured. Uh, For a moment, right, his everlasting glory breaks through, if you will, to Peter, James, and John. And so not only is Christ transfigured, if that weren't enough, and he's dazzling and he's white, but beside him appear Moses and Elijah, and they're talking. And the first question is probably, what are they talking about? In Luke 9.31, he tells us that they were talking about Christ's departure, or his exodus, that that would happen in Jerusalem. In fact, their conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah was centered on what God in Christ would be accomplishing through Jesus' death and resurrection at the holy city. So here at the transfiguration, we see that there's this Christ's salvific mission, his saving mission is highlighted. 
And in fact, it's really the focal point of this conversation. So I'd say Jesus' saving mission is also really important to the Reformers, and, and particularly Luther. For them, Solus Christus, again translated only Christ, was a proclamation of their conviction, right? So the Reformers are not stating everything that they believe about Christ in this sola, and nor are they negating the Trinity, the Church, or any other part of spiritual life. But they're emphasizing, or if you will, proclaiming, that Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone saves and saves to the utmost. So remember, understanding this slogan, Solus Christus, probably means we need to understand a little bit of the Reformer's context. And so Latin, at this point, Solus Christus is written in Latin, and Latin is the academic language of the church. And in many ways, it's still the language of the Catholic church. But 500 years ago, with a mostly illiterate population, what we find is it's used to address, this language was used to address internal conflicts, and that's why Luther writes it this way. So that said, Luther is not trying to, at least at the Reformation's inception, I'm sure people could argue later on, but at the Reformation's inception, Luther certainly didn't want a church schism, but in fact wanted to reform the already established church. So Luther is encouraging his fellow church leaders, to which he is a priest, to discover, or in some cases, rediscover the truth that only Christ saves and saves to the utmost. He makes the point that no other work, sacrament, saint, indulgence could add to Christ's finished work. So Solus Christus should first point us then to what we gain in Christ. It's a declaration of what we gain in Christ's saving work. And just briefly, a few of the things we gain is we gain this fact that we are rescued from evil, from transgressions, from what you think as your wrongness. Christ has taken on that sin and nailed it to the cross. Another way we gain from Christ's saving work is understanding that he will one day rid the cosmos of evil. He'll take all evil from the universe and destroy it without destroying us. And then finally, maybe most importantly, in Christ's death and resurrection, we gain liberation from the final enemy, and that is death. The great separator, as it's described, that has plagued us from the beginning. So in Christ's death and resurrection, we actually find that not only is death limited, but in one day it will be completely obliterated. Now, I understand I'm a hospice chaplain, so part of my work is dealing with the dying. And I understand that we continue to succumb to death. I see it daily. And we may not be able to see, I may not personally be able to see, even how this death and destruction and evil will be undone. But in Christ's saving work, we hope. And more than that, we know that one day the suffering and death experienced by our friends, by our family, and eventually ourselves will be undone, redeemed, and resurrected. So we see that Christ is our Savior from sin, death, and evil. But let's also look at Christ is our Savior from ourselves, our made-up religion, and our maniacal machinations, which is just a fancy word for schemes. Look with me at verse 4 in Matthew 17. Look with me at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the Gospel of Luke, if you're to look at that, it kind of frames the statement as Peter just not knowing what to say. He's so taken aback by this cataclysmic event that he doesn't know what he should possibly say in this moment. And he proposes a spiritual memorial of of sorts, right? I'll put up three shelters if your translation might say something like dwellings. It's very similar there. And scholars debate exactly what Peter was trying to do. And for for our sake, we're not going to explore that as much. But for for our purposes, it's clear that what Peter is trying to do, or what he attempts to do, even in in his ignorance, is make his own spiritual meaning of this event. So as Peter makes this offer, God, in fact, interrupts. The, The verse even reads that way. A cloud overshadows them, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob speaks. So what does God say? He says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. And like the disciples, we are compelled to listen to God's beloved. And what we'll find declared over us again and again from the word embodied, which is Christ, and the word written, scripture, is that in Christ you are now God's beloved, you are his child, and that he is pleased with you. To quote a couple of the many passages on this idea, the Apostle John writes, Dear friends, now you are children of God. And he writes again, he says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So from both Scripture and the life of Jesus, we find that Christ loves us and is acting on your behalf. In fact, he's welcoming you into his family. Now, as Peter did at the Transfiguration, we may, ha- we may try to make our own spiritual meaning of Jesus' saving work. So intellectually, we may espouse, and probably many of us in the room probably espouse, a correct doctrinal formula- formulation of what Jesus' death did. But our lives, and mine as well, show really that we have this fretful clamoring to earn God's extravagant grace. The reformers, too, understood this human tendency to create ways to earn God's favor or love. And there's many reasons why we do this, but one of the reasons is we love control. So if we can earn God's love in any way, he is, in fact, indebted to us. And so we think, in a way, we can control God. We can actually increase, or on on the flip side, we can decrease his favor towards us. But grace in Christ really blows this away, right? It destroys any sense of control when you recognize that God has already loved you and highly favored you in Christ. So solus Christus means that Christ saves us from ourselves, from the mind games that you play, from your made-up religion. What I'm trying to say here is that God's saving work is bigger than any person. In fact, it's bigger than you. Romans remind us that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not death or life, angels or demons, the present, the future, the past, powers, height, depth. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love, including you, including yourself. As your assurance of pardon reminded you and reminded all of us, that God remembers us according to his steadfast mercy and love. He doesn't remember our sins when we're in Christ, 
but he remembers us according to his loving kindness. He has thoughts of kindness and love towards you today. So Luther actually found this truth that Christ alone saves to be really important. In fact, it's so important that it could be said that it started this Reformation, of which we are daughters and sons of the Reformation as we sit here. And I confirmed this by uh, taking care of my son yesterday and reading through the 95 Theses, which is kind of what people think is the start of the it's a short, you know, 95 old sentences. Uh, and I read it, and my son, his 10 months, he just fell right asleep. So I feel like I should share that encouragement to parents because... As I'm exhausted, just Google 95 Theses and start through those, and they will be incredibly bored, uh, unless you're into that sort of stuff. That's fine, too. So it starts, really, this idea starts the Reformation. And so while Luther is a university prof, he's also a priest, and this is where it kind of comes from, for a local congregation in the town of Wittenberg. So the Pope at that time needed these funds, and in order to do this, he authorized people to sell, and many You've probably heard this story to sell indulgences. So indulgences were the good works of dead and gone saints that could be credited to your account, right? The purchaser could actually buy a better standing with God based on someone else's good works and really a declaration of the Pope that you've been forgiven in such a way. Practically, whether they meant this or not, practically it was understood to give one a free pass uh, and actually helps people to escape purgatory. They believe in the middle between heaven and hell there's purgatory, and they could actually buy people's way out of purgatory into heaven. One of these preachers, his name was Jonan Tetzel, and Tetzel began to preach and sell near the church of Luther. In fact, he's credited with the saying, whether he said it or not, is a penny in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You can feel the cheesiness of this Christian scheme. So Luther's congregants actually begin buying these indulgences, and the reformer is appalled. He is appalled that this practice is happening, and he opposes this Christian marketing scheme, right? So Luther believed that nothing but Christ and his saving work alone gave one a right standing with God. What had the church at Rome done? The church at Rome had simply created a scheme, a religious game, a maniacal machination that did no saving at all. In fact, though, we could look and say we create sometimes our own sense of indulgences. We might have our own made-up ideas of what it takes to make us right. But the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you from not only other schemes, but from the schemes that you tell yourself. So what do we learn from Christ our Savior? Well, if Christ is our Savior, we can rest securely. If Christ is our Savior, we can rest securely. So America is one of the most individualistic societies statistically to exist so far. Not bad, but one of the unattended consequences of that is there's great burdens on our individual expression and success, and you may feel that. So what you do, how we present ourselves, and how much we accomplish is really up to us. And a lot of us, myself included, we're frantically trying to measure up, and we, and we can't. So grace tells us a different story. Life in Christ, then, is not so much about doing as it is resting in what's already done for us. 
So today, I want you to hear that Christ, you are secure in Christ. If you believe in him, if you trust in him, his overflowing, unrelenting grace can't be added to. It can't be worked for. You have it. Your striving for God's favor will be like trying to catch the wind. But God in Christ loves you and accepts you. That means that this sort of grace in Christ undoes how we view our failures and our accomplishments. In fact, when you think about the way Scripture describes it, grace, in fact, crushes us in a way and rebuilds us back in Christ. So the grace of Christ has saved you from this constant self-accusation and this striving to gain acceptance that you've never given yourself. So in Christ, you're loved, you're enough, and God has thoughts of kindness towards you. So if Christ is your Savior, you can rest Savior. You can rest securely. So we'll go to our second point. We explored Christ as our Savior. Let's look at Christ, our mediator, receiving his daily help. Christ, our mediator. And we'll look at Matthew just 17.3. And it said just then, so Matthew 17.3, it says this. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And we'll first see that Christ is the fulfillment of God's everlasting covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of God's everlasting covenant. In this text, most scholars agree that Moses and Elijah symbolize or represent the entire Old Testament, right? Moses is the law, the Pentateuch, and then Elijah is the prophets. It's kind of a shorthand way for saying the rest of the Old Testament, encompassing that. So at this transfiguration scene, we really get this visual display of how the law and the prophets come to completion in Jesus. So Jesus gives a fuller and deeper meaning to all of Scripture. And we talked a little bit about this. Wes talked a little bit about this last week. But we find, like the transfiguration, we see that Christ's light illuminates the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah are also described as messianic forerunners, so people who came before the Messiah and kind of represented the Messiah. So that means, again, that Jesus' messianic mission, the fact that he is the Messiah and he saves, is highlighted in this scene. We see that here, in this culmination of Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus, Jesus is this chosen one, right? He's the Lamb of God. He's the new temple the better sacrifice, the perfect priest, the everlasting king, and the always truthful prophet who doesn't simply speak for God anymore, but speaks as God. So part of solus Christus means that the doctrine means that scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment in the work and person of Christ. So all scripture, rightly and contextually understood, in some way points or illuminates Jesus Christ. He is this illuminating presence and divine meaning of all of God's revelation. So we see that God is this, Christ is this fulfillment, but now we see that he is the mediator of God's daily grace. And we'll look at verse 6 in Matthew. We'll skip down a little bit in Matthew 17. We'll look at verse 6. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. So after the presence of God really envelops the disciples here, this voice booms the declaration over the sun, right? The disciples, if we put themselves in 
uh, their shoes or their sandals, if you will. It is, it's a frightening thing, right? And so rightfully, their eyes hit the dirt, and they don't look up. And what we find is Jesus' first action is actually to touch them, comfort them, and tell them to rise again. In a way, Christ's first act after the transfiguration mediates or brings to completion the technical definition, God's grace to the disciples. In a way, we see Christ bringing his grace to the disciples right after this event. And I would say, like the disciples, we too kind of receive his grace, right? The sermon of Hebrews proclaims that because Jesus is the better mediating high priest, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So not only does Solus Christus mean that we hold on Christ alone for our salvation, but it means that we have him for our daily help and our daily need. We don't move past. I don't move past. You don't move past Christ after we get saved. We don't move on from Christ and look for something else for our daily support and daily help. Christ, yes, he certainly saves us, but he actively sustains us, helps us, and prays for us. He mediates, again, brings about the intended result of God's saving grace. So Solus Christus echoes with the Apostle Paul that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Theologian N.T. Wright makes clear that this is an exclusive claim in a very pluralistic society. So what do we learn from Christ as our mediator? One of the means of grace that Christ's life and work highlight is the blessing of Scripture and his help in understanding them. So the transfiguration reminds us that Christ brings together all of Scripture. So this helps us understand the meaning, the purpose, and the trajectory of the Bible. Christ will bring this fuller, richer, and more expansive meaning to our understanding of Scripture. Right? His person and work will illuminate the Bible. In theological terms, they call it the sensus plenor, or the fuller meaning of the text. He doesn't change the text meaning, but he brings a fuller sense, a fuller meaning to it. But Christ not only helps us understand the scriptures, as we said, he mediates this grace and help. And so today, whether you realize it or not, or whether I realize it or not, we are experiencing Christ's grace today. He is in him, we live and move and have our being. And if we are sitting here, we are experiencing part of Christ's graces. But you might be asking yourself, or asking yourself a semblance of this question, what's a good way to invite Christ into every day? And so one way out of the many ways to do this would, I, would be what we would call the Jesus Prayer. So it has many names, but Christians throughout the centuries have used a variation of the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. They typically close their eyes, connect this phrase to their breathing, repeat it, and recenter themselves on Christ. And it's just a practice. It's nothing um, uh, false here. It's just the idea of inviting Christ into your daily moments. So for me, I use something like, Jesus, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And so I go, Lord Jesus, and then as I exhale, have mercy on me. And it's a short prayer, and it's a meditation of, of, of sense. It sense, centers you on Jesus and his mercy. So I encourage you, when you're distracted or disoriented or tempted or disillusioned, you can use this phrase and repeat it and rest in his presence. 
And that's one out of the many ways to invite Christ's grace into your life. So if we know Christ is our mediator, and we do, we can find grace to help us in our time of need. St. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, he writes briefly that uh, basically he compares us to the helplessness of a baby, and he compares their state to our state or dependence on God. So for Augustine, even though a baby has absolute intense cravings, the babe needs constant daily, hourly, minutes, some of you realize, minute help uh, from a baby. And having just had our first child, uh, and he's 10 months, I can attest to this constant need that if he didn't have one of the parents, poor little Judah would not have uh, survived, right? His complete existence is dependent on us. And so I, I use this illustration a way for us to think, imagine if we looked at ourselves more as this helpless baby who needed this minute hourly help, this momently help, how meaningfully, how meaningful or purposeful or spiritually alive could we be if, like a helpless babe, we invited, in whatever way that is for you, Christ into more of our daily moments. So we've seen Christ as our Savior, we've seen Christ as our mediator, and now we'll look at Christ our illuminator, and I will explain that. Christ our illuminator. It says, remember Christ's cosmic renewal. And this is the last point. So if you're with me in Matthew 17, you'll look at verse 2. We'll kind of go back again and we'll go to verse 2. And it says this. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And so first of all, we'll see is Christ illuminates humanity. Christ illuminates humanity. So As you read this, and if you look at your passage, you'll see that Christ is described as shining and white, and his face shone like the sun. And light in scripture often symbolizes truth, beauty, goodness, and we see this is on full display in Jesus at his transfiguration. So what Jesus does, and this this becomes really important, Jesus gives them a glimpse of his glorified heavenly body, and not only that, but he gives us a glimpse of what one day we will be like. So the, vi- the, the apostles actually see very vividly what the apostle John will describe in his letters when he says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall be as he is. So we will one day see Christ in this transfigured, glorious state. And we too will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, being made new, glorious, bright, and shining. So Christ didn't do the transfiguration simply just to reveal his glory, but he's revealing what will come through him. And this is not just an individual renewal, just that each one of us individually will be renewed, but a renewed, called-out community. So in Paul's letters to Colossians, he points out that Jesus has come to redeem his creation and make for him a called-out people. And so in Christ, we are the people of God. We are this new illuminated humanity, if you will. We are the church, this called out group that Christ has created. So that means a major part of Christ saving us was to establish this diverse family of God, right? In the Old Testament, what we read about, it reminds us that people from every nation and language will be part of this renewed humanity. So in him, the church we will fulfill God's creation mandate 
right? Acting as priestly daughters and sons, serving, creating, and worshiping God in love. We will be this renewed humanity. And so we see that Christ not only illuminates humanity, but we'll see that Christ will illuminate all things. Christ will illuminate all things. And if you skip down to the last verse, Matthew 17, 8, it says, when they lifted their eyes, lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So as the story closes, Jesus somehow takes back on his humble form, and the disciples lift their heads, and they see Jesus only. In many ways, they rise from the encounter new men. And like the disciples, we too have read, and in a way seen, this divine transfiguration. And we can't look and see Jesus, the world, or reality really in the same way anymore. Our eyes have been opened. We've seen, we begin to see Christ in all things. So as we'd expect from any story, Jesus and all his glory and power is the focal point of this story. And it's no coincidence that at the end of the story, all eyes are fixed on Jesus. But Jesus is not only the center of this story, but he's the focal point of the story, right? The story of everything. And Colossians 16, this is where Mike kind of, uh, when we were talking about the sermon, he pointed me to this passage, Colossians 1, 16 through 20, expands this idea. And just listen with me, and we'll read parts of it. It says, for by him, Christ... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in this text, it's really interesting. In this text, Paul explains that Christ is not only the center of the universe, but the creator and sustainer of it. He is the point of creation, and all things find their purpose in him. So this is really becomes beyond anything we can begin to imagine, and the ramifications seem hard for us to kind of grasp, and myself included. Because that means if we rightly understand a neuron, a friendship, a poem, the birds, a forest we'd see that all these things are created for the purpose of glorifying Christ and revealing in some way his reconciling work. So in a way, Christ illuminates everything. So solus Christus means that in Christ we find the ground of all reality. So this doctrine, this declaration, isn't some sort of esoteric idea, some sort of something that's detached from our lived experience, but the way to understand the meaning purpose, and center of all reality. Now, I caution you, this doesn't, uh, for me, of course, and, and I hope, hopefully for you, this doesn't eliminate a mystery or eliminate unanswered questions by any means, but it gives us a starting point, a grounding, or a template to begin to understand ourselves, the created world, and the universe, right? So if you're going, if you're thinking about majoring in science, they're not opposed, right? This there's something where we can see the glory of Christ in that. So that's, that's because Christ doesn't just illuminate our reality, the birds, a poem, a neuron, but in fact, he is reality itself. I'm not saying pantheistic, I'm not saying he's in all things, but I'm saying that he is, in fact, reality. He was before 
all things. This means the person and work of Jesus sheds light on our purpose, the purpose of the church, and the final purpose of creation. So we find at the end of the story, they simply see Jesus alone. But we understand that in them seeing Jesus, they see all things anew through his light. So what do we learn from Christ being this illuminator? Well, we know that if Christ illuminates creation, he's the center of all creation, we can participate in his renewal. So if Christ is the center, creator, and purpose of all things, then only in Christ do we find our ultimate meaning and experience true human flourishing. That means that we can participate in the plan and purpose of all creation, and everything you do, you do, excuse me, and everything I do has meaning. Everything we do in love has meaning. That means every scientific discovery, every late night with the baby, every lesson plan, every long work day, all the time you spend with family, every musical composition, all of those things can be integrated into the new and beautiful creation. In Christ, he will mysteriously use all of these raw materials, to quote N.T. Wright, and all these things done in love in order to make his renewed kingdom. So as you begin to see Christ in all things, it gives, hopefully, meaning, depth, and purpose to everything and to everything that you do. Whether eating or drinking or whatever you do, you can bring glory to God because you're participating in his cosmic plan for the universe. So if we know Christ illuminates creation, we can participate in its renewal. So I hope as we've explored solus Christus, only Christ, you've been reminded that Christ alone is your Savior and you can rest in his finished work. You don't have to do. You can rest. That Christ alone is your mediator between God and man. And today, right now, you can receive and are receiving his graces. And finally, that in Christ alone, I hope you're reminded that Jesus will renew all things. And right now, you can participate in the purpose of of all creation because of him. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your saving and helping power in Christ. I thank you that you will make all things new. Help us depend on Christ alone for all things, to see him in all things, and to participate in his kingdom. Lord, thank you for this time together, and bless us as we continue our worship of you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.